When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Willkommen, bienvenue, welcome. No, this is not cabaret, it's Think About It, a podcast about the power of ideas and how language can change the world, with Uli Baer. What is the role of a university in a democracy? Universities are one of the arbiters of truth, along with a free media. What do the attacks on the media have to do with free speech debates on campus colleges? What does it mean for the administration to question the media as one of the arbiters of truth? And how do we assess what is true, what are facts, when we are constantly bombarded with alternative facts and other ways of spreading propaganda? Join me today in a conversation with Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat of New York University. Professor Ben-Ghiat has been analyzing the speech of President Trump and also the way in which he's constantly on the lookout to attack the press in order to undermine and erode the public's trust in those who determine what is true and what is false, what is correct and what is incorrect. She also has some ideas of how to counter this constant barrage of news and how to develop and maintain our critical thinking skills. So welcome And thank you today. I'm very happy and pleased to have a historian from New York University, my colleague and friend, Dr. Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who is an expert on Italian history. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, the author of several books called Fascist Modernities and Italian Fascism's Empire Cinema. And she's, Ruth, you've talked a lot in the last couple of years about Political Language, uh, The Role of Communication, and you have a book forthcoming called Strong Men, How They Rise, Why They Succeed, How They Fall. And I've been talking to a lot of people about the speech controversies on campus and what's really at stake. And I've been reading as much as I could about from your work. And I was quite interested in how you've been thinking about the communication of uh, President Trump in particular and what it does to our understanding of the truth, what we believe in, what facts are. And because the speech controversies in universities are on the one hand about controversial speech, about hate speech, 
about sort of offensive speakers. That's sort of a shorthand way, but they're also about the role of the university as one of the arbiters of truth in society. And I think that's one of your interests in sort of what is happening today in our political landscape and our culture at large in relation how people relate to the truth and to communication. Yeah, I think there's a reason that the university in general in America has been on the forefront of the battles about free speech, because when you look in the past at authoritarian rulers or authoritarian-minded rulers, which I consider Donald Trump one of these, they always go after the sectors of society that deal in investigation, in inquiry, and in facts. And of course, researchers, the judiciary, the press, but the intelligentsia is one of them, right? So whether it's a left or a right-wing dictatorship in the past, the intelligentsia and the university has always been under attack. If you're thinking about the university in, in America, it's different from other time periods. We have 4,000 universities and colleges. There's some variety probably of opinion in those. And how do they contribute to the general population's understanding of what's true and what's, what's false? And when you say, there's lots of experts, so we have our own ways of making sense of it. And we certainly, in universities, we have a lot of disagreement. It's not one truth that emanates from the ivory tower, but there's a lot of disputed opinion, a lot of dissent. So how does this stand in relation to general discourse? And, in terms of when you're saying it's an arbiter of truth, it's not that we declare this is correct and everybody has to believe it, right? Yeah, I think that the kind of disputes over interpretations of history, of literature, of any field of inquiry are obviously very healthy and they are vital to what makes academia tick. And even the work that we do in our classrooms, when we invite students to read texts critically, and to disagree with us. These are things that obviously one can do in a university that operates in a democracy very well. But I also think that the political situation we're in now since the election of Trump, which has, of course, empowered Republicans to do what they've been wanting to do for some time, because this is not a new thing, the attack on universities for being too liberal. Now we have professor watch lists. There are certain things that have been able to come into being or get empowered or exacerbated more easily now, but these are long-standing issues. So one of the things I see has, is happening within universities is a very healthy debate about how much outreach academics should do. Because the rules of the game where we, as I said, where we, we dispute each other's interpretations, which can get fairly vivacious and even nasty, have been an in-game mostly. Now we're confronted, as more of us go on, on the public scene, we're confronted with people trying to discredit with uh, revisionist histories, which have always existed. But now, you know, certain disciplines like history and communication studies are, are out there in the public realm, where a lot of us are publishing in, in political arenas and newspapers. And, and so I think that the debate about the role of the academy in this whole manufactured crisis over what is truth and what is facts, I think this is very healthy that we've been called in this way to participate in that. If we go to one point you just made, there's a kind of 
assumption, or you can read quite a lot about this from both people in the university and outside, that it's too liberal. Too many liberals, too many Democrats on the faculty group think, a lack of viewpoint diversity. As you said, they're watch lists. They're actually sort of self-appointed watchdog groups who want to inform donors who to donate to what universities, and if they don't have enough Republicans on the faculty. This is one critique of the university as being too much of one mind. If we can take that for a moment, that has happened for decades. And when I was in college, Alan Bloom published The Closing of the American Mind. There was a kind of sense we're giving up on the classics. We're now substituting the curriculum. This hasn't stopped in 30 years. I feel like I've been reading the same book. Alan Bloom's book is actually a quite sophisticated book. Robert Hughes wrote The Culture of Complaint 25 or 30 years ago, which made the argument that you can hear today every single day that this is oversensitive, whiny, liberal social justice warriors who've diluted the truth of our tradition and the philosophical heritage. Do you think this conversation, how does it link up to this other thing that you've been identifying when at the presidency of Donald Trump, there's an erosion of the public's trust in institutions that usually say this is true and this is false, which is the press, the universities, the intelligentsia, Hollywood in a way. So all these different institutions and the university is just one of those. I think that universities and individual professors have not done a good enough job of being their own best advocates because in practice, although our, many of us have personal political views that skew liberal, it's not as though in, in, in our practice in the classroom and as mentors, we're actually assigning only liberal points of view for them to read. So if you look at people's syllabi, I don't need to tell you this, we're, when I assign, for, I teach fascism, I teach dictatorship, I teach all of these uh, right-wing uh, ideologies that are in favor with many of Trump's supporters and, of course, having a huge comeback in the global right. So would it make sense for me to only assign anti-fascist writings? No. In fact, what are they reading? They're actually reading the, quote, other point of view. They're reading also conservatives. You have to read what conservatives thought when they allied with fascists, for example. So th this, is, this is a point of fact that in our practice, we've been very Catholic, very ecumenical. However, we haven't done a good enough job of communicating that to the public. And the public often sees the professors as very elitist. When I, I do a lot of radio and I try and do outreach, and occasionally I will, probably for lack of research, find myself on a talk show with call-ins, which I really like, that I realize only after it started is quite right-wing. And I welcome that to answer questions about what professors do. So I think that this is a serious situation, but we could do much, much more because in point of fact, we are educating to all points of view. Stay with this point for a moment. So is there any truth to people who say the university is too liberal, it educates all these people? We both happen to be appointed at New York University, the largest private university in America, but it's only one of, as I said, 4,000 different schools. But do you think there's any truth to it at all when you say, is everybody balanced? And you, I mean, so you read texts that would be celebrated by the alt-right, right? These are kind of, they are canon. <laughs> so you are assigning texts. But 
Where does this come from, do you think, this unease, and why did it become a story about the university that then connects, will we get to, that connects to what Donald Trump is trying to do, is to undermine these institutions that allow people to sort of form or have informed opinions? Well, part of it is this very old American anti-intellectual bent, which, which is stronger than in certain other countries. Part of it, too, is that there isn't the same tradition of the public intellectual in America where the same person is teaching in the university and regularly in the press, as you have in France, certainly Italy, Germany, other countries. So the university has been viewed as with resentment as this closed-off elitist place. Also, it's because of the structure of the funding for public education If it costs so much, then of course it's going to be viewed as elite. If it's free, practically, then anyone can go. And so there are structural economic reasons for this as well. Can I ask you something specific about this term, elite? Yeah. How does this term become a kind of criticism or even as, as kind of an insult when, on the other hand, we know a lot of American parents, for very good reasons, want to send their kids to these elite schools because it is also the kind of, you know, escalator into the middle class. It's a, it's an opportunity. It bestows enormous amount of privilege on people. It has been viewed as both an equalizing, democratizing force. And there's a part of me who I think elite, this is part of America's aspirational culture. We want to belong to the elite, but we also very democratic country in the sense that we don't really accept a kind of aristocracy of mind? Well, in fact, I find um, that education is an area where the hypocrisy and double standard of American meritocracy comes out. As somebody who grew up in California and went to a very good public university, UCLA, who did not go to Ivy League universities, neither for undergraduate or for graduate did not grow up with the, quote, quote, Northeast Corridor elitism, I always found it very strange, and also someone who has non-American parents, right, that the first thing people ask you is, where did you go to school? So this is this, you know, Bourdieu kind of distinctions thing. And to this day, I don't like that question, and I don't like this, this issue of you are you know, where you went to school. Give me the, the Bourdieu, the game of distinction. What is that, What is at stake there when people say that? So, Ruth, where did you go to school? Are you going to ask me? It's a class question, and that's something class we don't talk about enough. And it's putting you, you know, in a category and measuring your worth. And only after that, within academics, people say, who did you work with? But the real question to the outside world, where did you go to school? And you see the, the wheels turning in people's Heads. And this, this transcends academics. This is, you know, in general, people ask this question. So, you know, these are, these are habits that it's no wonder that someone like Trump comes up or you have kind of people who could be described as populists who think they are the soul of the nation and you have these corrupt elites. It's no wonder that professors in the academy become a target socially in terms of social resentments and grievances, quite apart from the um, partisan Republican right-wing attempt to ruin the truth so that they may spread their own views of propaganda. So we have a two-front issue that we have to confront, that we have to deal with. You just made a very powerful statement, the Republican agenda to ruin the truth, to spread their own propaganda. 
So they want to open up a space to say, it's not just this professorial elite in these walled-off institutions, which actually by now almost include places like UCLA, UC Berkeley. It's so difficult to get in. One of the most amazing achievements in higher education in the world, surely, are the public institutions, the Michigan, the Texas, Virginia, Florida, California, many, many states. And they've been, as we know, severely underfunded, been underfunded for the last 30 years systematically. So you had something like 30 some percent of every student's funding was was from the state or federal government. And now it goes down to less than 15 or something like that. So there's an attack on that. To open up a space, you said, to spread their own. And then you said propaganda. And I'm sort of thinking, we live in a country where politicians spread propaganda. Isn't that, didn't that happen in the 1940s in Europe? We live in America. This is not happening today. So can you unpack this a bit to say, how do you, how does a political movement break down the hold on the truth to spread their own version of it? And when does that version become propaganda and not just another truth? And I have an opinion, you have an opinion, and these are two different competing truths. Well, the, the propaganda distinction lies in the deliberate manufacturing. Well, it's, it's a two-part process. One is the deliberately manufacturing an alternative reality. Often also in a personalist regime, which again is most dictatorships, this is actually the notion I'm working with in my book of strongmen, because what we're seeing in America, Trump is trying very hard to install a personalist system of rule. So you have not only manufacturing an alternate reality, but reality is what the leader says it is. And this personalist term describes what qualities that are different from another ruler. So personalist rule is one of these, you know, many political science categorizations of, of types of rule. But it refers to when a state is set up, and it could be from a fascist takeover, it could be elected democratically, like the new authoritarians, could be a military coup. But the end result is that, think of a kind of concentric circles or a centrifuge where everything becomes organized around the will and body and vision of the ruler. So when Trump says, I am the only one that matters, and then recently the Washington Post had a, and this is after two, you know, two plus years of him on the scene, had an article about the midterms that said, only Trump matters. Our discourse has been organized so much around Trump, and I've done a lot of op-eds recently, how to you know, push back at the Trump's propaganda machine when I did for the Washington Post very recently, how to get out of this hole. So propaganda, propaganda comes in when you have this deliberate two-part thing. The leader wants to be the only point of reference, the only source of truth, and everyone else has to be discredited. So it's, it's, to, it's building him up and building a bubble around him and actively revising history, revising the reality so that everybody else's versions are discredited. How does this happen that a population starts paying attention to one person's speech in this disproportionate way, that there aren't enough counter voices or criticisms? And when we had other presidents... Trump was one of the most vocal critics of President Obama for eight years and for eight years spent time discrediting that president as illegitimate. Why don't we have voices like that pushing back? Or do you think we have those voices 
We have them, but they are not given adequate coverage. And the media, so Trump is a charismatic person. We are living through a laboratory of what we can see in the past with different outcomes. Trump is not a fascist. He is not Hitler. He is not Mussolini. However, some of the same mechanisms have occurred. So you have a charismatic person who appears on the scene. You have conservative allies who decide they're going to kind of use him, and he's their man. They select him. They invest in him. They decide to kind of trumpet his charisma, because charisma is in the eye of the beholder, everybody since Max Weber has said. And so they use him in a sense. It's a mutual using. So they, they use him to do what they wanted to do anyway, which was to undo eight years of Obama, and then they have Pence there for the kind of the evangelical conservative agenda. So, so Trump is this kind of figure who comes in and shakes up the whole landscape. But the media is very complicit because the media decides who to focus on. And Trump is so compelling, Trump is such a disruptor, that they fell right into it just as media has done in past eras. And so they were the ones who focused, you know, attention disproportionately on him. So it's not as if someone who is this charismatic leader, would you say something like proto-fascist intentions or qualities has to shut down the media, deprive of us freedom of the press, scrap the First Amendment. He can do it actually in, in a certain complicated way by manipulating the media into doing their job and saying, we're covering the most interesting thing. I covered the entire campaign for CNN Opinion, which meant I watched all the debates. I wrote, you know, I was in roundups after everything, all the campaign speeches, everything. And I came to this with the eye of somebody who'd studied authoritarians in other places. I'm not an American historian. And this was very interesting. So I was able to isolate these mechanisms, both that come from the leader, you know, wannabe leader, and from the media and the public, right? So you saw that there was a very large field of Republican candidates and, and how the media came to focus on Trump even before he got the nomination. So language of these leaders is very important. And Trump did something that all authoritarians do to very bad consequence. They throw out trial balloons, as I call them, of propositions that are very provocative, that are violent. And in doing so, they are testing They're testing the press, they're testing other elites, they're testing the public to see their tolerance for shutting down opposition media, for hating journalists. We'll just keep to, to that. And when Trump came out and said in January 2016, well before he got the nomination, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and I wouldn't lose any followers. This to me, was the, it was over, the biggest red flag. And he did this, he was saying he was above the law, he was capable of violence, and this was something that was the biggest kind of testing of all. So he's been very successful, and, and the media didn't really know what to do with that. People were very nervous about it, but they didn't have any context. So he's been very successful in kind of setting the terms of the discourse in which he himself has been covered. So what you're describing is what's normally abbreviated and said the normalization of certain things. And you're saying it's actually more complex, more deliberate, and it's not just one powerful, charismatic person normalizing things, but actually paying close attention to how the public and the media respond. 
because we are in a he's in a democracy he needed to get elected and so it's a kind of a dialogue right it's like people compare him to a toddler where the toddler is testing boundaries right and I, i'm not a fan of that line of thought nor that he's a madman but the testing is very important because all of the people in the past did this too and putin does it today and erdogan does it today and one of the biggest lines that he was testing successfully is like we were all a focus group for him was that there is no one truth that facts can be disputed to return to our main concern here that the press is a lying press that you can have t-shirts that say you know rope journalist you know tree you can hang them so this was a drip drip for a very long time and so now we find he's been in power a while and of you know 43% of republicans in a recent polls said that it might be okay or it would be okay rather to shut down disobedient media which which is remarkable given that we have a lot of self-identified free speech absolutists which in many of the conversations i've had so far with constitutional experts law school professors said the absolutism is a concept but it is not a reality it's never been a reality in our country the supreme court has always recognized some necessary regulation of speech but there you're saying they're showing a remarkable willingness to tolerate some infringement on the freedom of the press which and the freedom of the press is protected precisely to criticize those in power and you're saying they're kind of giving in a bit and saying well they're not criticizing it from the right place that goes back again they have a liberal bias they're not fair to us i'm also really interested in this rhetoric because they very quickly switch into a mode we've been the victims of an unfair press that they are hounding us and they will marshal the other media but they will say we have to restrict this so mm-hmm. what falls apart very quickly is this idea of a marketplace of ideas everybody in america has a voice robust debate they say well we are actually not being treated fairly and it started out with something like the press isn't fair to us to now they're openly directly lying yeah and and this kind of polarization on the politics of emotion works very well because what authoritarian minded leaders and their enabling parties want is to keep everybody apart and to return to something that you raised before the press has been you know not not complicit in this so much but just negligent i it's a strong word but i would use it in not covering adequately the degree of opposition that there is it's been easier to glamorize villains such as when the new york times style section did a profile on dana lush who is a very violent subversive in my opinion who is the spokeswoman for the National Rifle Association. She has narrated these agitprop videos that are very very scary and very effective. So why give her a style profile? Why not select people who are toiling in legal offices? For example, there's a you've interviewed, you know, people who are doing constitutionalists. There's a very active resistance or pushback by people who you know there's groups such as protect democracy they used to be in the Obama administration department of justice lawyers they have a very active website you participated in that it's a kind of also to register and give voice to those activities yes, yes and i advise them and they work with the brennan center here at nyu but there are many and they're bipartisan so it's very important for the media for the morale of people too it's very important to 
let the nation know that there are bipartisan attempts to push back against this voiding of meaning, falsification of truth. You know, Trump is a one-man factory of falsehoods, but he's got Fox News as his chief propagandist, and they are very, very close to being a chief propaganda, a state propaganda machine. Indeed, their relationship of Fox and Trump goes beyond anything we've had before, because in past regimes, you have the press that echoes the ruler. In this case, we have Fox that actually, Trump watches Fox, and Fox emanates the idea. Sometimes they have a phone call with Trump beforehand, so there's an accord. And so then the ruler is echoing the state media, and it's a feedback loop. It's very tight. It's as tight as I've seen in contexts where you would say there's official propaganda. And you've analyzed this historically in different countries, because we really haven't quite seen this in this country to this degree at all. No, and propaganda works on repetition. And Trump is, he's done all of the things that one needs to do in terms of slogans. Uh, he's repeated fake news. He had certain slogans. He's a marketer. And somebody from the past who worked in a democratic environment, who was a very good marketer, was Berlusconi, who was very important if we're doing a history of how these things have operated from dictatorship to in a democracy, like authoritarians in democracies. So he's been able to really hammer home certain fundamental ideas that are easy to grasp. And from each of them has come a whole culture of assault, really. So fake news, you know, lock her up. That's the judiciary angle. And the other thing is, that, which I wrote about recently, we have a very bad habit now, the media and the public, of retweeting Trump. So we are serving as his unpaid laborers of his propaganda machine, his unpaid foot soldiers. Every time we retweet him, we open up his dangerous words to a whole other audience. And this is not an argument against censoring him, which would be impossible and undesirable, but it's the same with Steve Bannon, right? The argument, well, we want to give him, he deserves our coverage, we're in a free speech society. You could look at it and say, well, he's got ample coverage in right-wing circles and conservative circles. Why should we do him the favor of, you know, spreading his message further? I think you're hinting at that there's a kind of asymmetry because Trump, first of all, he occupies the highest office in the land. He has enormous power. He has access to an entire network that actually will echo or, as you say, precede and feed him this information point you just raised about Bannon and why should we retweet, why should we amplify this? I think the media is kind of caught in a position that they don't quite know the answer right now. And as we've seen recently, the New Yorker invited Bannon to a festival. A lot of people objected to this. Universities keep inviting conservative speakers. And there's a range of conservatism in this country. It's also not always just conservative speakers. I've interviewed a lot of people who said this is not about free speech. It is exclusively about hate speech, and mm -hmm. it is about violence. And they said, I've interviewed a lot of people at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville who said, you're wrong to interview us about free speech. This is about violence and about an attack on an institution. But the asymmetry is hard to manage in your mind because you want to sort of think, I can take the higher ground and I can give them the benefit of the doubt. Let me hear Steve Bannon out and then the truth will win out. Ultimately, people can make up their own minds. But what you're saying, he has access to tools 
that are very hard to counter right now. So, yeah, and these people really know what they're doing. One of the scariest things that has flown completely under the radar, and this is less for our country, well, it is, he has put his protege, Michael Pack, the CEO of the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, I believe it's called, which basically oversees Radio Free Asia, Radio Free Europe, the Voice of America, which was the propaganda arm of American democracy for decades. Now the conservatives, and I would say the right, because anyone who's a protege of Bannon is on the right, have control of this. So we've been completely undefended and unprepared to strike back with the necessary vigor at this assault that we're under. And it runs counter to, you know, perhaps the style of liberal democracy where, you know, our symbol was not the hammer and sickle or the, or the fist or the salute. You don't want to punch. And, and I'm not advocating that anybody punch and engage in violence. But we need to find a way to contain and push back at this onslaught of ideas that are designed to not just invalidate the truth, but overturn democracy. Some of these people like Bannon are very clear in what their aim is. You, you, you made a point to say this is not a fascist leader. I've interviewed Jason Stanley and people yeah. like that sort of who's interested in similar topics. Yeah. And can you think of anything? I don't know, examples in history where there has been effective resistance to this? Because when I think about the European tradition, European democracies fell victim to this again and again with the complicity or, as you say, the negligence of the media. And in some ways, can I have an example where it actually worked, where the people were able to resist this tempting spectacle of a charismatic leader who starts telling you the truth, you don't have to think so much, and he also blows up all these politically correct taboos, which I think in this country is very exciting for people. He says things that presumably people couldn't have said. I interviewed Ian Haney Lopez, who wrote on dog whistle politics, and he said, we've had this for 50 years, but Trump went a step further. It's no longer dog whistle. It's now audible to everyone. He just says what people had kind of alluded to. So yeah. is there an example how we can resist to get out of this? And there is a real, as I mean, we're conducting this interview while Dr. Blasey Ford is in front of Congress right now testifying and whether we're going to have Judge Kavanaugh on the court. Another incredible example of the incommensurability of types of speech where one type of speech will be put to a standard that probably can't be met and yeah. they're enforcing that. So do you have examples how to, at this moment, change course a bit? I don't have an example of a charismatic leader who was defeated. However, there's Macron, for example, who is an interesting case because, you know, we're dealing with models of leadership here. And he has chosen to make himself very, some say in France, very de Gaullean, very imperial, standing up. When he met Trump at the G7, he shook his hand so tightly because he understands symbolism and masculinity. This is all toxic masculinity, the strong man. He shook his hand so tightly that it left an impression physically on him, and it was supposed to leave a psychological impression. And in fact, either the Times or the Post recently had a feature on who do leaders call first, and who does Trump call first of foreign leaders? Macron. Or look what's happened in Ireland. 
where you have an openly gay prime minister, and that's a country with a history, doesn't have any history of autocracy, but it certainly has a history of great violence. So there are ways that the media can more actively shape a narrative of democratic successes and people in our country who are having success, who are really making a difference. These are our heroes. We need new heroes. I may be misunderstanding this. So isn't this Macron just kind of a simulation of masculinity, maybe not toxic, but he was sort of the stronger, younger guy. And so Trump was impressed because Trump will be impressed by strength on all sides. And so Trudeau, he doesn't like so much. He's too nice, Canadian. Well, he's, he's too threatening. Yeah. Well, one of the problems is that in order to be respected, Macron has, has had to move over into the strong man. And the real losers in this climate, of course, are people like Angela Merkel, who is regularly insulted you know, by Putin, who tries to scare her with dogs. And of course, Clinton, the outpouring of hatred and violence against Clinton. You have that and you have Trump. And I've, I've been studying and collecting images made by Trump supporters, paintings of Trump, posters of Trump. And this is like the collective unconscious, although it's not that unconscious, is out there, right? Trump as John Wayne, true grit with an eye patch. Trump as the abject feeling our pain where he clutches, he's in his Brioni suit, right? It's just this ridiculous you know, juxtaposition of his actual wealth. He's clutching a tattered flag and he is abject. He he is assuming our pain, which, so there's all these ways where Trump is this kind of hero that people needed. And we need to have our own pantheon of heroes and to spread them. We've had some. Most of them have been people who he's fired, who, right, Sally Yates and, and you know, James Comey and these people. But we need to have heroes that are put to our consumption and celebration by the media who weren't fired by Trump, who were just coming from below. And we're in a very strange place politically where the CIA and the FBI are furnishing our ideas of victims, who's being victimized in the name of truth by Trump. So we're at a very particular moment. But I think I hear you saying that in some ways we're in this kind of very dangerous game and we shouldn't step out of it and we should on some level, not fight fire with fire, but actually say we need our own narratives and this place of the powerful savior has to be filled. It doesn't have to be a strong man, propagandist, personalist leader, but we nonetheless need this. We need charisma. We need to believe in people. We need people who tell us a little bit what is the meaning of America, what is our, what our life's about. So you're actually saying we can't just keep on deconstructing Trump all day long and looking at his last tweet and saying, what did this mean? What did that mean? Because that is playing into his game. We're stuck around his game. And I think, you know, to come back to the beginning with what can the role of the university be, I think that academics need to be supported and encouraged more by their institution. Maybe not encouraged, let's say, because that could be viewed as partisan. But if they choose to speak out, to be to know that the university will support them if they have security threats, which many of us have had. And more generally, it doesn't only have to be on politics, but to the university support a kind of knowledge exchange, as it's known in the UK, or impact. Because universities don't really, right now, many of them know how to value that. 
They don't know in performance reviews and merit things, they don't know how to reward it. It can also be seen as something that's negative. So part of the conversation we need to have in order to do this work of pushing back is to let the academics be used as a resource. And some of the most effective can be conservatives, you know, the kind of never Trumpers who have, some of them have made great careers like Max Boot out of this. But I think the university can do a much better job of allowing its talents and selling to the greater public the services it provides in an actually much more impartial way than people think. Could you try a definition of what is the university's idea of the truth? Because I've lived and you've lived through all the debates about postmodernism and actually the liberal university took apart the truth and they don't believe there is a truth, etc. And then I've been quite a bit puzzled that in the areas of the sciences, there isn't as much vocal outrage and opposition that this is an administration that does not believe in science, really. And I thought, actually, it's not about free speech in the humanities with some extremist speaker and a couple politically active woke students protesting. I think this is a sideshow to what we're talking about, is that the university's role in a, in a democracy, which Hannah Arendt once says, the university is, by definition, uncomfortable to power. It's going to generate questions. It's completely at odds with itself, but its job is actually to put these questions into the public, just like the media is uncomfortable for power always. And Hannah Arendt had a very strange wish that the university should not be politicized. And I think she also lived through a time when the university was always already politicized, but she felt politics should stay out of the university because it's the other two power. But what is truth in, largely speaking, because in our fields, you in history, in Italian studies, you work on film, on literature, on historical documents, and you know there are disputes. But could the university come together and say, we actually stand for something, and you are standing for the opposite of this? First of all, the right to do investigation on topics that you see as important and valuable to society. Because that, the choice of subjects is often what lands people today in Turkey or today in Russia, just the choice of subjects. Archives around the world are closing. Putin has put great restrictions. People trying to do research in China have had problems. So the right to research what one thinks is important is key. Say something else about that, because I don't think that's necessarily a given outside of the academy. What do you mean by that? That you choose to research something, the history of a well, political process? Well, part of it is very practical, where the people who get in trouble with regimes are often investigative journalists. NYU, you know, Roberto Saviano wrote to me in 2011, like, hi, I would like to come to your department. And I thought at first, why does he want to come to my department of all departments in the world? And then we, you know, got it together and, and I'm very grateful to the administration. And we he brought was, it. He's the author of, name is two, two books. He's the author book. of Gomorrah and he had investigated the finances of the mafia. So the choice of investigating one thing or another can already get you in trouble. Because part of living in a moment of right-wing or authoritarian uptick is that certain subjects not only get twisted, but they become off-limits. And so the right to 
freely decide on your topic of research and to carry it out without fear of personal harm is a base point that is bipartisan. It's not just a liberal thing. It's a, simply a human rights thing. It's an inquiry thing. And that really is the mission if you want to say the university is dedicated to the free exchange of ideas and to educating students to the widest possible points of view, that's a good place to start. But this, I really like this, Ruth, because this would give the university a way to say we are the strongest defenders of free speech as the freedom to inquire into anything that is worth inquiring into and to talk about it without restriction or fear of repression. Where we've ended up, and this has been puzzling and intriguing to me, that the university more often says, we are free speech advocates, which means we will bring racists to campus. And I've talked to so many students who got confused by that message and said, this is your great priority. And when you think of free speech, you think of violent racists. This is the example you come up with. Because universities don't say, these things happen. This is terrible. What we're defending is the right of our faculty to do their work without any kind of fear of repression, both governmental or through a Twitter mob which will affect universities' policies or behavior. Yeah, and I've come to this from immersing myself, and it's not the most pleasant of things, in all of these cases of strongman rulers. And this is one of the things that they have in common. And also it's from my experience of the last two years, you know, plunging into this world of doing journalism and seeing what the boundaries are of people think you shouldn't be talking about. And I think that academics themselves are a little uncomfortable sometimes with people speaking out, especially if it's not in the New Yorker, the New York Review of Books, or you know certain, certain elite areas. And at the beginning, when I was doing things with CNN, some colleagues were perplexed. But, you know, this is how you reach people. You get emails that can be hostile, they can be flattering from you know, nurses, from veterans, from all over the world, really. So I think that the university, both in upholding our right to inquire, can also recognize a bit more or acculturate academics, support the acculturation of academics. Not everybody is going to speak out and write. That would be another podcast topic, what it means to do that, to take that on today. But I think that's a starting point. What has happened in the past historically in the regimes you've studied with universities where a country has either drifted more or less slowly or deliberately or pretty much overnight lost a lot of its democratic norms and values? What has happened to universities in those countries under those regimes? It's a nefarious process that, you know, it's many things happen at once. And again, it's sometimes over time. One thing is that, New subjects are born and supported. You could call that curriculum, where in the fascist regimes you had entire you know, departments and faculties of race studies. Other things are discouraged. You can Not no longer critical, teach. It wasn't critical race studies the way we had in all legal law schools in the 80s. Racist, how to be a racist studies, um, or corporativism. But more to the point is that in regimes where there is a party, one party, you get pressured to join the party. And it's step by step. You can have to sign an oath, which is what the fascist regimes did. Nazi Germany modeled it on the one for fascist Italy. 
you can have physical violence. But the key is that many academics thought, if I only do this one thing, they'll leave me alone. In reality, doing that one thing opens the door, it's the Pandora's box, and then you find yourself wearing the black shirt. Or, and then, you know, right now, Turkey is case sad case study in what's happening to academics. I mean, hundreds of researchers have been arrested on the grounds that they are terrorists. And what you study, to go back to our point of free inquiry, can already make you liable for charges of terrorism. If you're going to study, you know, the wrong kind of, Turkish history or insinuate in your or, or study a group that Turkey would rather not be investigated, you're put in jail. Let me ask you with something also that I'm very puzzled by, and you may be able to help me and others understand. There's a kind of strange alliance of liberals or self-styled liberals, for example, who have faulted gender studies and ethnic studies department. And then you have political movements, populist movements in Turkey, Poland, Hungary, and Germany, who are attacking, of all things, gender studies, which are a tiny, minuscule part of universities, for example, in Germany or in the U.S., if less than 2% of resources or faculty positions, but they are an explicit, deliberate target from the ultra-right wing and from our liberal colleagues who feel gender studies as an identity politics, like the kind of attack on identity politics, when they come together there, how do you actually explain what's going on? I guess in one word, intolerance. An inability. I don't, I don't know if I want to put them together so easily because their goals are very different. But when you are suspicious of certain lines of inquiry being allowed to exist, that is intolerance. And it's not democratic, it's not helpful. And I think that our times in America are hopefully forcing us to take a step back. Like I'm trying to look at tactics. I'm trying to have all of my op-eds and I'm trying to take a step back and look at the tactics of what's going on. And if we do that, we may realize that saying attacking gender studies you may feel like you've won a battle, but you're going to lose the war. It's not helpful to, when our liberal democracy is really threatened, it's not helpful to do that. When women are under attack, you know, the backlash against Me Too, it's not helpful to attack gender studies. So you're making a distinction between an overall strategy and tactical moves right now. And that's what my question is about, that some people... I may have other reasons to be critical of such departments or forms of inquiry, but they are inadvertently or deliberately or without knowing it being aligned with very different strategies that are actually going to, to touch them as well. Yeah, and I think we have to be very thoughtful. And I have found that deciding to do this thing of, you know, having a public voice has made me think about this. There was a point where you know, right around the inauguration, I predicted very successfully what what Trump was going to do. And I did a few of these every, every few months. So people would write to me and they say, I can't read you before I go to sleep. You're frightening me. And so then I thought, and I got a lot of these, because a few of the pieces went viral on CNN, and that means, you know, 10 million people. It's, the numbers are huge, right? 
So then I thought, well, is it useful for me to be doing this right now? Because if I'm going to depoliticize and scare people, that's not helpful. So again, it's hard if we're on Twitter all day and we're retweeting, you know, people have alerts set to the latest tweet that Trump does. And this is keeping us in the details. We don't see the big picture because we're stuck being reactive. So just from my own person, I'm trying to step back. And I think that that's a more helpful thing to do. So, so. so concrete advice for people. I've asked this of other people. Your know, colleague Carolyn Rouse at Princeton, she said she actually went off the news for quite a while and has sort of ways to filter it because it is overwhelming. And as you're saying, None of us are totally immune to some of the, because it's excitement, it's visceral, it's a spectacle, and mm -hmm. everybody else talks about it, so you're kind of not, you're left out if you don't know, so and, I mean, you can hardly avoid a conversation. So what's your concrete steps for our listeners to do? What should they read? And I'll ask you after that, where can they find what you're writing? You know, you have to keep up. I wouldn't say what they should read. They, I think it's important to whether it's on your Facebook feed or your Twitter feed, have people from the opposite points of view. Know what they're saying. I follow Richard Spencer. Richard Spencer follows me. So that's one thing. And yet, you know, try and have a sense of when the constant flow of facts and distractions that the Trump administration is putting to us is overwhelming your critical sense. And academics, you know, we're trained to take the facts, do our research, and then make some general conclusions out of it to go big, think big picture. And our academic culture, the MacArthur's are about to be announced and they reward the big thinkers. So we need to be big thinkers. We can't let ourselves get lost in the forest. Lastly, Ruth, so Professor Ben-Ghiad, where can people find what you're writing? What's the easiest way? Can you give us some recommendations? And when is your book going to come out? Uh, the book... Probably won't come out till end of 2019. I'm still writing it. The best way, you can follow me on Twitter at Ruth Ben-Ghiat, or I have my website, www.ruthbengiat.com, that has all my articles, both academic and journalistic, and the two are increasingly coming together. Great, and I, I will put all that information on the, on the podcast website as well. So I want to thank you again. This is Professor Ruth Ben-Yad of New York University. Really, I've learned an enormous amount, and I wish you good luck with writing the book, and I hope to have you back on Think About It in this podcast about ideas. And, uh, thank you. Okay. okay. Thanks so much, Ruth. Bye. Bye-bye.